As Dustin mentioned, we are back in 2 Corinthians. You go ahead and turn there with me. We're going to be in chapter 10 today of 2 Corinthians. Dustin's already hinted at um, this letter itself and some of its uniqueness. As we learned at the end of last year when we studied the first nine chapters of 2 Corinthians, uh, we learned that this letter is quite different than most of Paul's other letters. Um, It's unique in in a variety of different ways, including the way that it's structured or formatted. Normally, Paul's letters, his epistles, were written to churches that were struggling either with doctrinal issues, theological issues, um, behavior issues, sin issues. And so Paul, in most of his letters, when he um, scripted them, would spend the first half of the letter on um, discussing theology or doctrine or whatever issue they were particularly struggling with. For instance, the letter of Galatians. The first half of the book deals with their propensity to um, struggle with legalism, believing that we have to jump through all these hoops to honor God. And Paul has to bring them back to the purity of Christ in your relationship with Christ. And so most of his letters are like that. This letter is radically different. In fact, it's radically different than the first letter that he wrote, um, 1 Corinthians, to... um, to them. In fact, in that letter, there's all these different theological topics that he addresses throughout the letter. This letter, Paul wrote because there were some struggles on his previous visit. If you remember, um, the Corinthian culture was, was overly sexualized. There's all kinds of stuff going on in it, a lot of paganism and, and idolatry. And so Paul had to make an emergency visit to see the Corinthians because of some stuff that had come up. And so he went on that visit, and it didn't go very well at all. In fact, it was referred to by Paul as a very painful visit that caused a lot of sorrow in the church. Part of what happened was when Paul arrived in Corinth, there were some false teachers that had come in from the outside. And they were, in fact, he refers to them as super apostles. You can almost imagine them with their red capes on the back and the giant S-A on their shirts, right? And um, so these super apostles had come in with all their pomp and circumstance and began to mislead the church. But as part of that, they began to attack Paul personally and say that he wasn't qualified. In fact, we don't know much about the apostle Paul in terms of his stature. But Paul himself says that he was of of low stature, that he wasn't very fanciful in the way that he spoke. He was extremely educated, but he was just a man who walked around and made tents for a living and traveled from place to place, which means he probably was a little disheveled at times and other things. And these other super apostles who come into the church with all their fancy clothes and and, um, all their credentials and all the letters of recommendations from others, and they came in and they said, why are you listening to Paul? You should listen to us. And so that's the kind of stuff Paul had to deal with. So after that very, very painful visit that didn't seem to go very well, Paul wrote them a letter. And he rebuked them in some respects. That letter is referred to as the severe letter. And that even caused more distress. Not because it wasn't right, but because the Corinthians didn't respond very well to it. Some of them had repented of their sinful behavior. Others did not. It seemed to fire up the super apostles. So what we basically find is that Paul then follows up with this letter to the Corinthians. So after the painful visit, after the severe letter, Paul sends this new letter and tries to correct some of that stuff. He spends most of the book, about the first nine chapters, defending himself. Saying, look, I'm not like these other people. I didn't come in with all the pomp and circumstance and all these letters of recommendation and, and win you to Christ through deception. I was honest with you. All I did was I came and I preached Christ to you. And so he spends the first nine chapters or so defending himself. And we went through that at the end of last year. 
What he does today, or what he does in this letter then, is he confronts a lot of that, but then at the very end, these last few chapters, he now says, okay, I'm coming back to visit you again, and I don't want to have another visit like the last one. So these last few chapters now are all about preparing them for his next visit. And so we're going to look at that, look at these, these uh, chapters in four sections. The first one is the verse, uh, verses uh, uh, 1 through 18. And what I'm, what I'm uh, marveling at this morning as I look at this text is the way that Paul addresses these individuals as he's trying to prepare them for his next visit. And so what I'm going to do with the text today is I'm going to look at it from the perspective of what it means to be a genuine leader. Because that's what Paul focuses on here. Because again, he's confronting these false super-apostles, these, these false teachers that had misled the Corinthians. And so as he prepares to go in, he's going to say, you better be ready for my visit. But he starts by talking about himself, which is unusual for Paul. But he's going to talk about himself and about his leadership style. And so there's going to be at least four traits that we're going to see here today of what it means to be a genuine or a real leader. And what's neat about this is it not only applies to Paul, but it applies to anybody like me that stands up here in front of you. It applies to any leader within the Christian church. But it also applies to moms and dads because we lead our families. It applies to those in our jobs who want to be leaders in the workplace. It applies to even students who want to be leaders among their peers. It's something that we should all really aspire to, is it not? And so these traits that we're going to see today are highly practical, not only in how we evaluate leaders, but the kind of leaders we choose, but also in the kind of leaders that we might ourselves want to be in our families, in our homes, in our relationships. The first trait that I want us to see is that leaders lead with grace and humility. Leaders lead with grace and humility. Look at the first six verses of chapter 10. I'll read them and then we'll come back and work through them. Now I, Paul, myself, urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I, who am meek when face to face with you, but bold towards you when absent. I ask that when I am present, I need not be bold with the confidence with which I propose to be courageous against some who regard us as if we walked according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not wage war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking everything or every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And we are ready to punish all who disobey whenever your obedience is complete. Now there's... It's a little hard to track through this passage. Paul is being very flowery in some respects with his language, but we'll do our best to break it down. The first thing we notice in this section is the way Paul pleads with the Corinthians to be ready for his visit. Notice in verse 1 there it says, I urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. In the New American Standard Version, which is what I use here, Paul uses the word urge. Other translations you have in your hands might use words like appeal or entreat or to plead or even maybe to beg because that's really what's What's in mind here? Paul, in essence, is saying, I'm pleading with you. I'm I'm begging you to be prepared for my visit. It's not a demand. He's pleading with them. So rather than demand something, Paul appeals to them. And notice how he does it. He says, I'm going to plead with you. 
to be ready with or by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Now think about that for a moment. That word for meekness refers to a gentleness in attitude or behavior. It's not a term of weakness. It just means that you are gentle in your attitude, in your behavior towards others. The word for gentleness there means to be gracious in the way that you forbear things, which means how you handle opposition. So when Paul says, I appeal to you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, he's basically saying that he's appealing to them just as Jesus Christ would himself. And we know how Jesus Christ appealed to people. He was gracious. He was merciful. He was gentle. But at times he was also stern, was he not? We have a few instances where where, uh, one of them, Jesus turned over tables in the marketplace. Um, We have another where he called um, the, the religious leaders a brood of vipers and whitewashed tombs. But those are the rare exceptions. Jesus was always... Meek, gentle. In fact, if you think about what we just discovered in the, in the book of Mark, when, when he faced the Sanhedrin, the wicked courts that accused him of all these things, and what did he do? He didn't fight back. When they came to arrest him with over 600 soldiers, and some of his men were ready to fight, and one of them pulls out a sword and cuts off the ear of one of the servants of the chief priest, what did Jesus say? Put it away. When he was confronted with the, the um, high priest and, and even Pilate himself, he basically says, this is not my kingdom here. I'm not going to fight. And he stayed silent before his accusers. He went to the cross without fighting back. That's meekness and gentleness as he dealt with those who opposed him. The second thing that we notice is that the mood of the visit is going to be completely determined by the Corinthians. Notice that what Paul does here is he's going to basically say, this is all on you. I'm coming in the meekness and gentleness of Christ. That's how I want this meeting to go. If it doesn't go that way, it's because you chose for it not to go that way. So the mood will ultimately be determined by how they respond, which basically means that Paul did not go into this visit here with guns fully loaded, blazing, ready to just take out all of those that were opposing him. He had no interest in that. It's interesting, I was a part of, uh, part of a Facebook group on, on creationism, Young Earth Creationism, and um, I don't normally do a lot of posting on Facebook just because, I, uh, one, I don't have time, but two, it gets to be so, you know, especially topics that not everybody agrees on. And there was one the other day where a gentleman had um, responded that all of Genesis chapter 2 is pure myth. Pure myth, which is in many respects foolishness. And I decided I would respond back to it. But the reason I did was because a number of the responses to this guy were, were guns loaded. In fact, one of the first comments that somebody posted in response to this guy was, called him an atheist, called him a God-hater. And I'm like, the guy believes that Genesis 2 is myth. Doesn't mean he's a God-hater. Doesn't mean that he's an atheist. It means he's misinformed. And you don't come at him with guns out and attacking his character. And there were a number of these things. And so I thought, I'm going to respond in a different way. I'm going to respond with the argument. And so I shared some things that might, I hope, help him to understand that that it's a bit of a foolish statement. There's no way that Genesis 2 can be a myth because it destroys the gospel. If Genesis 2 is a myth, then the gospel is a myth. Because Paul himself bases a gospel on a real Adam, a real Eve, and a real fall. But... I was again taken aback by what I saw there, and that's totally the opposite of a Christian leader. 
Paul doesn't say, I'm coming, you better be ready, I'm going to whip out the weapons. Instead he says, I'm coming to you in the meekness and gentleness of Christ. But it is determined on how you respond. Paul's hope is that when he arrived, he would not be forced to deal with them harshly. Look at what he says in verse 2. He says, I ask that when I am present, that I don't need to be bold with you, with the confidence with which I propose to be courageous against some who regard us as if we walked according to their flesh. What he's basically saying here is, there are some among you that I know I'm going to have to be harsh with. Because they're going to be rebellious, they're going to be arrogant and proud, and they're not going to listen to reason. But I don't want to have to treat all of you Corinthians like that. Many of the Corinthians were opposed to Paul now. They had bought into the lies of the false teachers. And Paul was being gracious and kind, saying, I want to come to you in meekness and gentleness. I want to reason with you. I don't want to come to you like I might have to some of those outright rebellious false teachers that are misleading you. Paul suspected that he was going to have to do that because some of these false teachers, it says here in verse 2, claimed that he was walking according to the flesh. What that basically means is he wasn't spiritual in the way he behaved. It was purely about his muscle and his might. He came in wielding authority and was abusing that authority. They said he was walking according to the flesh, which means he was driven and motivated by sinful desires. Paul responds, he says, well, I might walk in the flesh, meaning, yeah, I might be human and I might have fleshly things, but that's not the way that I fight the battles that God has given me to fight. He says instead, verse 4, that we respond with divinely powerful weapons, he says here. He brings down fortresses and destroys false speculations and any other lofty thing that is contrary to the knowledge of God. Now, that's a, that's a weird statement. It's a little bit difficult to work through and understand. But basically, what Paul is saying in verses 4 and 5 here is that when he has to confront, he doesn't do so with the flesh. He doesn't respond with his flesh. Instead, he responds with spiritual arguments or theological arguments or debate. Let me give you a a good example of this. Um, When you confront somebody over their sin, you can confront them as, it just bothers me when you do that. And if they don't respond kindly, then you just get in a debate and you argue with them and you spat and you just, you know, and then you might threaten. Isn't that the way it oftentimes works? Paul always wanted to use spiritual weapons. Well, what's the greatest spiritual weapon we have? It's the Word of God. It's what God says. That's why Paul says that they take every every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. He's talking about theological, spiritual arguments. So... When, it, when we deal with issues, especially like what Paul was dealing with, these false teachers and whatnot, he wanted to confront with the truth of the Word of God, not his own fleshly arguments and debate and strategy. The problem with these false teachers is they came in using all the rhetoric of the day. The, the Greeks were known for their rhetoric, their style of debate. In fact, it's a, well, it's a well-known fact that it wasn't what they said that was important. Nobody cared. The Greek philosophers even wrote about that. Nobody cared about the content or the truth of the content. All they cared about was how it was said. If you were a great debater, you got praised. If you could manipulate and destroy your opponent, you got praised. Because that was always the goal. Tear down your opponent. And if you were a skilled orator, you could do that. Does that sound like anything today? You guys are all kind of laughing and smiling. We look at politics. Isn't that the way politics are today? Nobody wants to think about the issues. That's oftentimes, and that's exactly like this. I thought, when I'm looking at some of the responses to this guy's comment about Genesis 2, I'm thinking, you call the guy an atheist? You don't know him. Why not address what he actually said? 
And the reason is many of them can't. Many of them can't. And so what Paul is saying here is, when I come to you, I'm going to address you with spiritual arguments, theological arguments, things that relate and pertain to Christ. I'm not going to come to you like these false teachers did and debate that way and fight in the flesh. That's what they're doing. So while Paul expected and was fully prepared to have to confront some of those false teachers, he was hoping for better things when it came to the rest of his readers. I won't have you turn here, but in chapter 12, verse 20, Paul tells him what he tells his, his readers what he's afraid of. He says, I'm afraid that when I come, there might be strife, jealousy, anger, temper, angry tempers, disputes, slander, gossip, arrogance, disturbances. That's what he's trying to avoid. Verse 10 of chapter 13, Paul says, For this reason I am writing these things while absent, so that when present, I need not use severity in accordance with the authority which the Lord gave me for building up and not for tearing down. Did you catch that? Paul says, when I come to you, I don't want to come to you as an authority figure. He was given authority as an apostle. There's no question about that. Jesus himself gave the apostles plus Paul a certain amount of authority. These guys were given direct revelation by God. They were given specific tasks, you know, um, I remember the the walking on the beach when Jesus is talking to Peter. And it's pretty clear that he gave Peter certain responsibility and authorities within the church, right? And these guys recognize that. And so Paul says, I have authority in Christ. God has given that to me as an apostle, but I don't want to have to come flexing that muscle. I want to come to you in gentleness and meekness to resolve the issues that exist. But, he told him, I am prepared if I have to, to punish. And it's because he had that authority. Isn't that much like how a parent is supposed to be? You know, we should only have to punish, if you will. I hate that word, but it's the best word we have to define discipline. But wouldn't you rather resolve stuff without having to punish? You punish as a last resort. You exercise that authority as a last resort. You don't start that way. I grew up... (laughs) Dustin. I grew up with friends whose parents began that way. I remember sitting out in my front yard. There was a neighbor that we had who was a drunk. We were very close with their family. And I I, I probably lost count of the number of times where I would see the dad yelling and screaming at the kids outside, literally trying to kick them with the boot on his foot and having the kids run and try to get away from the physical abuse. That's the way he responded any time they did anything that upset him. That was the first response. So Paul, the first principle we can learn here, is that Paul believed that a leader should lead with grace and mercy. A couple of takeaways from that. First, disobedience and sin should always be addressed first by appealing with meekness and gentleness. Whether it's with our kids, whether it's within the church, whether it's with interpersonal relationships that we have, whether it's at school or neighborhood. Our goal should always be to build up and not tear down. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1 talks about this. It says that the goal should be restoration. Paul had a desire to restore the relationship with the Corinthians. Even though these guys had abused him pretty severely, they had said some nasty things about him. 
They had torn down his reputation. He had, they had drawn people away in the church and abused them. And yet Paul still wanted to approach with the concept of restoration, mercy, gentleness. In fact, when he sent Timothy onto the city of Ephesus, which was filled with a number of false teachers there, Paul said that Timothy should address them with gentleness in the hopes that they would come to their senses. So the first thing that we can learn from this is that obedience and sin should always be addressed first with this kind of an appeal. Not with guns blaring, not with accusations. Again, that's, Dave, Dave hit the nail on the head. That's the problem with Facebook. I use Facebook because of family stuff, but boy, you know, the things we'll say and do on Facebook that we wouldn't do face-to-face because they'd embarrass us. And oftentimes it's this kind of stuff, this just attack. Second thing that we can learn from this small section of Scripture is that when, when confronting such things, we should rely on spiritual weapons, not our own flesh or ability. You know? Learning to use spiritual arguments, learning to use the scriptures. Um, I've had a recent opportunity with a friend of mine who's called me after a number of years. He's in a, a terrible place marriage-wise, and um, each time he calls, I try to take him to the scriptures. It doesn't matter what I think or believe. I want him to know what God thinks and believes. And as much as he has disregarded for years the counsel and advice that he sought from me, um, it would be very easy for me to say, you didn't listen last time. But gentle and mercy. Gentleness and mercy. But I always take him back to the scriptures. Spiritual weapons, because nothing I say is going to change him. Nothing. But will, what will are spiritual things, spiritual weapons. So give him the counsel of the word of God. And that would bode well for any type of confrontation we find ourselves in, is make it a confrontation over what this says. Not just how you feel or what you personally think. Tie it to something God has done or God has said. Let's look at the second trait about leaders. I'm going to read verses 7 through, 7 through 11 here. You are looking at things as they are outwardly. If anyone is confident in himself that he is in Christ, let him consider this again within himself, that just as he is in Christ, so also are we. For even if I boast somewhat further about our authority which the Lord gave for building you up and not destroying you, I will not be put to shame. For I do not wish to seem as if I would terrify you by my letters. For they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is unimpressive and his speech contemptible. That's one of the claims they were making about Paul. Let such a person consider this, that we are in word by letter, or I'm sorry, let, let such a person consider this, that What we are in word by letters when absent, such persons we are also in need when present. The second trait that I want us to see here is that a true leader understands the true nature of authority. They understand what authority really is. There's an awful lot of abuse, especially in our culture, that's based off of misunderstanding of authority, whether that be in the family or whether it be in politics or the church. Now there are two ways to translate verse 7. And they're both equally accurate doesn't mean they're both right. What I mean by accurate is there's a way to translate any foreign language, and sometimes translating that language is there's more than one ways to do it. And in Greek, that's always the case because commands have the same exact word form as statements of fact. So a word could be a command, do this, or it could be a statement of fact, you're doing this. And there's no way to tell in the Greek sometimes which is which. You have to base it on the context. And this is one where we're not really sure, but the NASB, the translation I use here, says this. 
you're looking at things as they are outwardly. Meaning, the way you're viewing me, the way you're viewing the situation, you're purely looking at the external things. The NIV says you are judging by appearances. Okay? If that's Paul's intent here, then he's actually rebuking them, calling them out for evaluating him and his authority based on worldly or outward appearances and ultimately determining that he's unworthy of their respect. In other words, what he's saying is, you're looking at me and my companions here purely from a worldly standpoint. In other words, like you are all the other super apostles and false teachers that are there. You're comparing me to all the Greek philosophers and how they have all the pomp and circumstance and they dress fancy and they have all the, their wealth and all the letters of recommendation and all that. You're trying to evaluate me based on that standard, but that's a worldly standard. That's one way we might interpret this. Another way is to do what a couple of other translations of the Bible do, which uh, if you've got the ESV or the Christian Holman Standard, it says this, Look at what's in front of you! In other words, it's more of a charge against them. Look at what's obvious! Take a look around! In other words, if this is Paul's intent, he's basically saying, Look around at me and my companions. What do you really see? Isn't it really interesting how... If we were to stop for a moment and ask ourselves if everything the media says about every political candidate was true, we might have a different opinion, right? But we don't always do that. We just take their word for it. I don't know how many times I've seen people post articles online, whether it's in Facebook or other things, that ultimately are not true. They just saw it and reposted it. In other words, it's what they see. They're basing it on outward things. Media says it... But if you stop and look, and so what Paul is doing here is, is again, one of two things. He's either saying, you're just looking at things purely from a worldly perspective, or you're not looking at what the reality is in front of you. You're not evaluating it. And so he, it's a, either way, it's a bit of a rebuke. Okay? It's a bit of a rebuke. The problem is, the false teachers were abusing their authority. And Paul is now going to, with this, say... Look at the difference. Look at their understanding of authority and look at my understanding of authority. Because the evidence is right in front of you. You can see that we exercise authority different than they do. So in essence, he's saying, open your eyes and look around. Paul defends his authority he has in Christ, and there's some nuggets of truth here for us. And these apply to anybody who wants to be a leader, again, whether it's at home or among peers or anything else. I'm going to focus on three real minor things here. The first is Paul recognized the source of authority. Where does authority come from? Look at verse 7 again. If anyone is confident in himself that he is in Christ, let him consider this again within himself, that just as he is in Christ, so we also. In other words, where does authority come from? What's the source of authority? It's supposed to be Christ. Christ is the source of authority. I have zero authority here at Renew. You heard Dustin praise that, right? I have zero authority on my own. Any authority is from Christ. I have certain rules in the scriptures that explain to me how I am supposed to shepherd. That's the authority. It's what Christ says. That was the problem with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all those that we learned about in the book of Mark. Jesus rebuked them for their abuse of their authority, their manipulation. So Paul says that he recognized the true source of authority. These apostles that had come in, these super apostles, didn't understand that. They were wielding worldly authority. They came in with these letters, Paul says, of recommendation. 
You know, that's what gave them their power and authority was, oh, what these other people say about me. Oh, the letters after my name. I love watching some of these, these shows on the History Channel and that that bring in all these Bible scholars that are supposed to, supposedly authorities on the Scriptures because they have all these letters after their name and yet they completely deny what's written. It's all myth. It's all fake. They don't believe it. But yet because they have the letters after their name, they're authorities. The best Bible teacher I've ever known, aside from my mentor, was a guy who never finished the fourth grade. Never. He was, lived on a farm out in the middle of the country in Wisconsin and didn't even finish the fourth grade. But he was a phenomenal Bible teacher because he understood this. He had been studying the scriptures for his whole By the time I met him, he was in his 80s. He used to love to hear him teach. He didn't need letters after his name. He didn't even have a diploma. Now that can be dangerous in some respects, but in his case, it didn't matter. So Paul recognized the source of his authority was something that came from Christ. He also recognized what I'm going to call the plurality of authority. Look at verse 8. For even if I boast somewhat further about our authority. Do you notice there that Paul refers to our authority and not my authority? He says, even if I boast somewhat further about my authority? No, he says about our authority. In this letter, our refers to Paul, Timothy, and Titus, who ministered to the Corinthians. Paul understood that authority that the Lord had granted to him as an apostle was something that was shared with those that he traveled with. Paul never, never set himself up as an exclusive authority. In fact, when they established churches, we're told that Paul, as he traveled around and planted churches, always established elders, plural. Never an elder, never a pastor, but rather elders, plural. That's why Paul stresses our authority here, because Paul understood that authority is not something that is held in the hand of one individual. One of the problems with so many of our churches today is the pastor is the authority on all matters. That's not right. Here at Renew, I have stressed over and over and over with our group of leaders here that it's not about me. We don't make universal decisions. And I think Dustin would vouch for this, that even when it comes to things I've shared time and time again, I don't want to overly influence the leadership here. I don't want to manipulate. If I want something a certain way, I've got to be very careful because in our culture and society, it's almost like, well, it's the pastor. He's God's leader for this church. We should listen to him. I've got to be very, very careful with that sometimes. That's why God establishes elders. There are far too many voices in the church today that establish themselves as a single source of authority. I've got to be very careful with that. So we not only see the source of authority, the plurality of authority, but Paul also recognized the purpose of authority. Notice what he says in verse 8. He says, The Lord gave this authority for the building up of you and not destroying you. So oftentimes authority is used to destroy rather than build up. Authority is supposed to be something that's used to build people up, not tear them down. Our political leaders have authority. It ought to be to build us up, not tear us down. But how often, what happens? Government, you know, with the founding of our, our nation, the way that our Constitution was structured and written was specifically to protect its citizens from the abuse of governmental authority. That's why it's written. And in order to violate that, we oftentimes find many disregarding our Constitution for that reason. So Paul recognized the purpose of his authority 
was that it was to build up, never to tear down. And so as he approached Corinth on this third visit, he wanted that to be the case. So Paul understood the true nature of authority in terms of its source, its plurality, and its purpose. He even gives a little glimpse here. Some of the false teachers were accusing Paul of abusing his authority. And so they had made this claim that, you notice what Paul does? When he's here in front of you in person, he's like gentle. But as soon as he gets away, he writes these nasty letters to you to manipulate you, to you know accuse you. He wields this authority in these letters and pretends to be somebody he's not. And so Paul says, I don't want to seem as if we would terrify you by our letters. That's not why I wrote my letters to you. I'm not trying to terrify you like these false teachers are claiming I'm trying to do. And that's where you see in verse 10, they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is unimpressive and speech contemptible. In other words, they were basically saying, Paul's just trying to manipulate you through these nasty letters he's writing to you. He's abusing that authority. The reality was... They were the ones that were doing that. They were the ones that were abusing their authority. And that's why Paul says in verse 11, Let these people, let this person consider this, that we are the same in our words as we are in our letters. And they could see that. In the past few years, we've seen some examples where this stuff has been abused severely. We've seen some rather big-name Christian leaders, pastors, who we've discovered used this manipulative, abusive form of authority to manipulate their elder boards and their churches. I don't need to name them here, but um, you read the details and it's wicked. It's wicked. It's an absolute abuse of authority. And Paul says, no, a true leader recognizes the nature of authority. So that's the second principle. The third trait is that leaders do not boast beyond the measure of that God has given to them. Now this is a rather strange one. Let me highlight this for you. Verses 12 through 18. For we, are, for we are not bold to class or to compare ourselves with some of those who commend themselves. But when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are without understanding. But we will not boast beyond our measure, but within the measure of the spear which God apportioned to us as a measure to reach even as far as you. For we are not overextending ourselves as we did not reach to you, for we were the first to come even as far as you in the gospel of Christ. Not boasting beyond our measure, that is, in other men's labors, but with the hope that as your faith grows, we will be within our sphere enlarged even more by you. So as to preach the gospel even to the regions beyond you and not to boast in what has been accomplished in the sphere of another. Now, I know that's a mouthful. We'll go ahead and we'll digest that. Many leaders are not content to work or to minister within the sphere that God has given to them. They're always looking for something bigger, something better, something more powerful. We see that in politics, don't we? You know, um, Always trying to climb the ladder, always trying to make more money or have more power or have more influence. That's one of the problems we have today with this whole new megachurch, multi-campus movement in America. I've, I've expressed my frustration with that, where you have a, a church that grows and has a popular pastor, and so they plant another church with another campus to have influence, and instead of getting a pastor for that church, they beam the, path, the main pastor in, and then they do another campus. And that's the largest, or that's the most um, 
prominent model of church planting today. Dustin and I talked about this the other day with oftentimes when churches are planted, it's sent out a group of people with a, with a huge budget. And it's not that that's necessarily wrong or bad, but oftentimes um, this idea of planting churches like what Paul did, Paul would go into a community and plant a church and he would then establish leaders for that church from within that church and from within that community. And then he would move on. We don't see Paul saying, we're going to set up the, Paul, or the church of Paul and just beam me in if you can. You know, I'll do all the teaching, I'll do all the preaching and we'll build this big monster machine called the church of Paul with all these little campuses all over the place. That wasn't something Paul was interested in. And part of it was because Paul recognized, God has given me a sphere of influence and a sphere of ministry. And I work within that sphere. I don't have a desire to push the envelope and to try to get outside that sphere to make myself more popular or have more influence. Look at what Paul says in verse 12. For we are not bold to class or compare ourselves with some of those who commend themselves. But when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are without understanding. Now how many times you said themselves there? There's this interesting phenomenon within what we call the word faith movement here. Where a person's popularity is gained by getting other people to recommend you and to commend you. So you all talk about each other within your circles. And so you have a pastor who has a church here, maybe he's been a little successful there, and he hooks up with another pastor over here and says, hey, if you let me come to your church and preach, I'll let you come to my church and preach. And what they begin to do then is to build these, they puff each other up to where all of a sudden you've got this circuit now where they go on four or five or six different word faith churches and they write their books and they sell their books within the churches. And it's all this sort of, I'm going to call it a fake of the facade of popularity. And I, I think I've shared it before. I've got a, a friend that I, that I um, used to have in seminary that is involved with some circles doing some very similar things in business. And I shared an example with Amy the other night how they've been promoting themselves as extremely popular, but if you look at who's recommending them, it's always the same people in their circles. They're just cross they're always recommending each other this way. And they, they say, look at how popular I am because of all these likes. And you go in there and you look, and half the likes are from themselves. They're really not all that popular. But it looks like they're popular. And they're building a popularity on the work of other people. In other words, in their sphere. And so what Paul's really talking about here is you have these, these teachers that walk into Corinth and they build off Paul's ministry and say, look at what, how popular we are. We just preached at Paul's church down the street. They recommend us to you. Well, what are you going to do? Wow, if they recommend you, we should, we should accept you too. They're boasting in somebody else's work and ministry. They did, in the words of Obama, you didn't build that. Whoever thought we'd quote that in church, right? Um, and so Paul basically says that a third trait of a genuine leader is that he doesn't boast and all this stuff outside he's not interested in puffing himself up and building this big influential movement through this form of deceit and boasting in the work of others or Paul basically tells the Corinthians here look we were the first to come to you we're working within our sphere we're not like these outsiders that came in and took over the church I was the first to lead you to Christ I worked within the sphere God had given to me. He sent me to you. That's where I was content to work. And when God sends me to another area, 
I want it to be an area where somebody hasn't already shared the gospel and I just come in and I get to be their favorite teacher now. Paul says, that's not the way true leadership works. You look at where God has sort of assigned you and you work and if God grows that, great, God grows it. But this idea of taking advantage of all the little fleshly avenues of trying to build that and take advantage of what others did. And like I said, it's real, real common in that word faith movement where they all sort of you know, go on TBN and everybody shows up and Benny Hinn and all the others start recommending each other and just going on and on about how awesome they are and it gives this illusion of their popularity and their authority and their power. And it's all fake. It just all crumbles, folks. And so Paul says, that's not leadership. That's not genuine leadership. Instead... Paul chooses to boast in some other things. In fact, he looks at uh, verses 15 and 16 here. He says, we don't boast beyond our measure. That is, in another man's labors. Paul says, I don't go into another man's area and take over his ministry. He says, verse 15, but with the hope that your, as your faith grows, we will be within our sphere enlarged even more by you so as to preach the gospel even to the regions beyond you. And not to boast in what has been accomplished in the sphere of another. Paul basically says, I want my ministry to just grow organically. As you grow and mature, then I may be able to do other things too. So as, as you grow and mature, that might lead to me being able to share the gospel with other people but it's purely based on what God does and where he placed me to start with. It isn't, I'm always looking for the better ministry. I'm always looking for the better place to go. You know, If I'm not happy in Congress, maybe I'll go over here. And I'm losing some popularity here, so maybe I'll go over here instead. In fact, there's one of the presidential candidates this week here that uh, dropped out of the presidential race and is going to now run for Senate. I, I understand that, but the whole point is, you know, well, I couldn't do it here. Maybe I do a better job over here now. You know what, if you had a desire to run for a Senate and you really thought God wanted you in the Senate, then run for the Senate. I wouldn't want him representing me if his real goal was to basically be the president, but because that didn't work out, I'll take the next best thing. I'm sorry, folks. Maybe it sounds judgmental on my part, but go where God puts you. Don't always be looking for something better and greater. And Paul said, I didn't do that. It's not true leadership. The last and fourth trait that we're going to see here comes in verses 17 and 18, and we'll finish up with this. And it also has to do with boasting. And it's that a true leader doesn't boast in himself, but he boasts in the Lord. He doesn't boast in himself. He boasts in the Lord. Look at verses 17 and 18. But he who boasts is to boast in the Lord. For it's not he who commends himself that is approved, and he means here ultimately by God, but he whom the Lord commends. In other words, what's really important? What other people say about you or what God thinks about you? What he's saying here is it doesn't matter what everybody else thinks about you. What really matters is what God thinks about you. Are you approved before him? This is the second time that Paul used this Quote here in verse 17, He who boasts in the Lord comes from Jeremiah chapter 9, which is where God warned the Israelites not to boast in their own wisdom or their might or their riches, but rather in their understanding and knowledge of God. So Paul uses that here to say, Hey, if anything, a true leader boasts in the Lord, not in himself. He doesn't boast in his own accomplishments. He boasts in what the Lord has done. 
Paul also uses this same exact verse in chapter 1, verse 31 of Second or 1 Corinthians, where he context is very similar, but he tells the Corinthians that they would elevate their own teachers. And again, it's you don't have to turn there, but it's first chapter of First Corinthians, where they were saying, I'm a, I'm a follower of Paul, I'm a follower of Apollos, I've got all my favorite teachers, and I follow them, and it led to debates and arguments. And so Paul chastised them and says, no, he has to be a follower of anybody, be a follower of the Lord. And a leader would tell you that, don't follow me, follow Christ. So here, Paul is dealing with these false apostles who were boasting in themselves. In fact, Paul says, they come into this church with all these letters of recommendations trying to win the favor of people. They're all boasting in themselves, Paul says. They keep, remember, themselves, themselves, themselves. They're all talking about each other. They're all puffing themselves up with pride. And Paul says, that's not how a leader behaves. He doesn't boast in himself. He boasts instead in the Lord. Makes me think of politics again today. I think about, it's one thing to name off your accomplishments, another thing to boast in them. You know, Paul's not saying that we shouldn't recognize the way that the Lord uses us, but it should be just that, the way the Lord uses us, what the Lord has done through us. In fact, a little bit later in this book, we won't cover it today, Paul actually does a little bit of boasting. He boasts about his weaknesses, though. And the reason he does that is he says, I would much rather boast about what the Lord has done with my weaknesses than my strengths. In fact, he even calls it foolishness to list off the way that he had suffered for Christ. There's a great chapter where he talks about, it's a great chapter because these leaders are coming in and all they got are these letters that say, hey, this dude's really cool. And Paul's like, really? Let's compare that to where I've been. And Paul talks about the number of times he'd been shipwrecked. The number of times he had been beaten to the point of death, almost. And he rattles off all this stuff. And he's like, really? They got a couple of nice, pretty letters? And you're willing to accept them? Look at what I have done through Christ. But then even if he calls that foolishness, it's foolish for me to even mention those things. Because I am much more interested in what God has done because of those things and the fact that I am weak, not strong. And so Paul recognize that a a leader doesn't boast in himself. He's going to boast only in what the Lord has done and recognizes that it's all the Lord, it's not him. You know, um, as much as I find myself, and I'll be real careful here, I would not call myself a Trump supporter. Many of Trump's policies, I think, are good for the country. Not all of them. But the one thing that really does bother me is the constant boasting about himself. (laughs) And I'll be real frank, I think it it irritates me, it bothers me. You know? It's one thing to say, I did this. It's another thing to boast about it and boast about it. But you know what? That's common in politics. They all do it. It's rare to find the one who doesn't do that. No matter what the political party. You know what? A leader doesn't do that. Doesn't boast in himself. Paul instead... For it is not he who commends himself that is approved, but whom the Lord commends. So what we do is we boast in the Lord because we understand that self-approval is meaningless. My boasting is meaningless. You know, we as elders have talked about this too on how 
Um, we, we rattled off some things the other night. Things that we've seen in, in different individuals within the church in this, that we can see what God has done. And we rejoice in that. It has nothing to do with us. It's what the Lord has done. And so we boasted about that the other night. About what the Lord has done in the hearts of some of the folks here at Renew. That's what a leader does. So, let me just recap real briefly here. Four different traits here that I think can apply to our lives. Leaders lead with grace and humility. They always lead with grace and humility. Leaders understand the true nature of authority. Yes, leaders have authority, but they understand the nature of that authority. The source, the fact that it isn't just held within their hands, and they understand the purpose of that. That it's always to build up, never to tear down. Try to apply that in China. Try to apply that in North Korea right now. It doesn't work that way, folks. Leaders understand the nature of authority. Third was that leaders do not boast beyond where God has placed them. They don't boast in other people's accomplishments. They boast in what what ultimately God has done, which is the fourth trait. So, I want you to chew on those things this morning. Again, I think these are principles that apply not just for what's standing right here in the pulpit this morning, but think about that as your own families, those of you that are moms and dads, husbands and wives, how you lead. Think about it as people in the workplace. Some of us are in positions of authority in the workplace. Some of us are not. But, Many of us also would like to consider ourselves leaders among our peers. We should be as Christians. We should be leaders in our community and in our neighborhoods and in our work environment. That doesn't necessarily mean that we have people under us, if I can say it that way, but rather we are simply leaders because we lead like Christ. So these principles, I think, apply in almost every aspect of life.